Yes, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect that they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back for another episode. I apologize, it's been so long. We put out the climate change episode and uh, we got great feedback on that. And it was even featured on the This Week in Liberpods podcast, where what they do is they show some of their favorite growing podcasts in the, the Liberty podcast genre, I guess you would call it. And uh, they put our episode on that. And we get to see a, a lot of new listeners and, and even more people coming in. And I just want to thank you so much for that because we wouldn't get noticed if it weren't for all of you who listen and who share the show and who keep tuning in over and over again. So thank you for listening to that. And I'm sorry I made you wait so long. I didn't mean to ghost you, but uh, I got a little bit busy and put the podcast off a little bit. And then all of a sudden I blinked and it had been over a month since we put an episode out. So I'm going to do a better job at getting those out more regularly. This is actually the third time I've recorded this intro. Uh, we did the podcast a couple nights ago and had a computer error and lost the whole thing and then recorded again last night and got finished with it and realized that the episode was way too long. So what I'm going to do here is I'm actually going to cut the first two segments of the show just to make it come in at a more reasonable time. So what I had talked about was I talked about Super Tuesday and the role that each of the candidates played and why the dominoes fell the way that they did and kind of my theory as to what's happening here and what the Democratic Party is trying to accomplish by rallying behind Joe Biden the way that they have. And then I answered some of the questions that Democrats had, some of the issues that they had with the impeachment process and the way that things went down. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to save those. I'm going to maybe put them out as like a bonus episode or something like that, maybe in a week or so. But I wanted to make sure that it came in at an appropriate amount of time. And with that being said, we're going to jump straight over to this mob mentality portion of the podcast. So without further ado, Let's get to it. And once more, we're seeing what Scott Adams calls two movies on one screen. Both sides are watching the same events. They're seeing completely different stories here. And that brings us to the question, is this a new thing? Is this something that's just starting to show up because we live in this social media generation? Is this something that's new to our times? Well, let's jump back to the year 1856. I've been reading a book called Washington Babylon. It's a huge collection of all kinds of scandals that have happened in American politics all the way since the, the founding of our country, all the way back to then. So we're going to take a trip back in time to the year 1856. And I would compare slavery back then to probably something like abortion is now. Right? You've got people on both sides of it that are very, very passionate and, and very firmly believe that, that what they believe is the best way. And they can't believe that anybody else would believe something differently. But you do see both sides really going at it and both sides being very passionate about not wanting to budge from their position because this is something that is so important that you, you know, either can't take it away or you can't let it happen depending on what side you're on. And I think it's very possible with abortion as well, that maybe 100 years, 200 years from now, we look back on abortion and maybe this issue gets decided one way or the other. And we can't believe that people actually argued about this, much the same way that we look back a couple hundred years later and we can't believe that anybody ever argued about slavery, that people actually thought this was the right thing to do. So it's 1856 and there is a new state called Kansas and there's a lot of debate in Washington as to whether or not this new state is going to be a free state or a slave state. 
So in a speech called The Crime Against Kansas, Charles Sumner spoke for three hours one day and continued for two hours on the next day. And he spoke out against slavery, and he singled out two congressmen in particular who he thought were the most disgusting for supporting slavery. And one of those guys was Senator Andrew Butler from South Carolina. And if you're trying to picture this in your head, Andrew Butler looked just like the the boss from Super Mario World. Uh, Ludwig von Koopa looks exactly like him. Trust me. Now, Sumner compared Butler to Don Quixote. And he said that, you know, he's bumbling through this adventure as he's supporting slavery. And he said that Butler had chosen an ugly mistress that he liked, but everyone else thought was repulsive and ugly. And that harlot's name was slavery. Now, for the time, this was an incredibly huge insult. And it was so insulting and so over the top that nobody was quite sure how to take it. The senator from Illinois, Stephen Douglas, actually wondered out loud if Sumner was trying to upset them so much that somebody would attack him and kick him like a dog in the street so that he could attract some kind of sympathy from people. At one point, uh, he even said, this damned fool Sumner is going to get himself shot by some other damned fool. So this generated a lot of press. It generated a lot of talk, but it was partially because it was so over the top and so crazy, even for an issue that was as contentious as slavery. Now, there was another guy in the Senate chamber that day. Preston Brooks was a congressman from South Carolina, and he was Andrew Butler's cousin. Now, this guy looked like a young Abraham Lincoln, if you look him up and you're trying to picture that. He was furious what Sumner had said about his cousin. So he waited for the newspapers to print it, and he read it again and became even more angry. He decided that something needed to be done. Now, Preston Brooks was a Southern gentleman, so he didn't think it would be right to use a pistol or sword to get his revenge. But he did have a pretty bad limp from where he had once injured his hip in a duel and he walked with a cane. So he looked at his cane and he finally decided that that would be a good enough weapon. A few days later, as the Senate let out, Preston Brooks walked into the chamber and walked up behind Charles Sumner, who was at his desk writing furiously. Brooks walked up to him. He said, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over very carefully. It is libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. As Sumner started to stand up to face his accuser, Brooks started beating him with the gold-headed cane. He struck him at least 30 times by his own count and continued until the cane was shattered and Sumner lay bloody and unconscious on the Senate floor. At one point, Sumner even tried to crawl under the desk to get some kind of shelter, and Brooks followed him right under, and they ended up, the, the desk was bolted to the floor, and they ended up ripping the desk up off the floor. Now, while Sumner was being beaten, there was almost another fight on the Senate floor. The senator from Kentucky tried to step in to stop him, but another representative from South Carolina told him not to interfere and raised his own cane in the air to emphasize his point. The senator from Georgia was also nearby, and he did nothing to stop it. Later, he simply said, I approved of it. Now, Brooks, the guy who looked just like a young Abraham Lincoln, was arrested for assault because he beat this guy up to defend his cousin who looked like Ludwig von Koopa. But he was widely considered a hero of the pro-slavery movement. 
And this whole thing is being printed in the papers. This is the story of the week that everybody has an opinion on and everybody wants to talk about. And the nation was completely divided as to who was the perpetrator of the whole fight. The North believed that Brooks started the fight by coming in and beating the guy with his cane, but the South believed that Sumner had practically asked for it. Now, Brooks knew he was in trouble, so he resigned his seat from the House. He went to court, he was tried for assault, uh, but he was only fined $300, and his constituents loved him so much that they immediately voted him back into Congress. This brings us back to our impeachment discussion, where we see two movies on one screen. Two sides completely disagreeing over simple facts. And often they, they dehumanize and they demonize anyone who disagrees with them. But I think it's important that we remember Donald Trump in this discussion. Because you've heard me say this before, while Trump's not a great president by any means, he has been a great influence on the Republican Party. And in this episode, there are points where it's going to sound a little bit like I'm cheering on the Republicans here. Let me be clear. I'm not complimenting Donald Trump's Republican Party because I like corn subsidies or because I like Social Security or because I like bombing innocent children in Iran. I'm complimenting them because the left has been absolutely destroying them for decades when it comes to public policy and moving public opinion. The Republican Party, they've been bad at negotiation. They've been terrible at marketing. They're pathetic when it comes to persuasion. And finally, under the leadership of Donald Trump, they're starting to catch up a little bit. And as you've heard me say before, gridlock in Washington is the best thing we can hope for. I don't want them to get anything done. And there's no way that you can have gridlock if the left is infinitely stronger than the right. That's why I say, that Donald Trump has been good for the Republicans. You've got to admit, this entire impeachment ordeal would not have gone down this way if John Kasich or Mitt Romney were president. Democrats would have demanded a bigger impeachment trial and the Republicans would have compromised and they would have given them one. Democrats would have demanded an apology from the president over this whole Ukraine thing and President John Kasich or President Romney would have given some form of apology or concession um, just to be civil. Right? We just want to get along. Democrats would have pulled out these ridiculous rape accusations against Brett Kavanaugh with no evidence, no corroborating testimony. Even the supposed victim couldn't remember any useful details. And then they would have said, hey, even if we can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, the question marks alone mean it wouldn't be proper to put him in the public office. And the Republicans, they would have compromised. They would have said, we believe you, Kavanaugh, but... We have to move on. And they would have left him and his career and his reputation in the mud while they moved on to some other centrist candidate that wouldn't upset the left quite so badly. And then, you know, in the name of fairness, in the name of civility, in the name of democracy, the GOP would have rolled over once again and let the Democrats get another win or, you know, at least most of a win. And this is something that Democrats are very good at. And I'm going to do an episode on this someday. And it'll be called, like, Why the Left Always Wins or something, a better name than that, but it'll be something along those lines um, because there's a lot of things that they do very well. And so what they're doing in this hypothetical example that we're talking about here with President Romney is they make an outrageous request or claim and then they demand that the right compromises and the right doesn't want to be bad citizens, so they kind of meet them halfway. So 
let's just make up an example here. Let's say uh, Republicans want to cut taxes by 5%. You know, just a little trim gives you more money to spend on uh, Bibles and fried chicken and whatever else it is that Republicans like. But Democrats want to raise taxes by 20% because you got to have free college, you got to have free health care, you got to have bathrooms for all the genders, all that stuff. So we got to raise taxes by 20% to pay for these things. So just to be clear, Republicans want to cut taxes by 5%. Democrats want to raise taxes by 20%. Well, the right, they will compromise and both sides will settle on a 10% increase in taxes. I'll meet them in the middle. But when this happens, who really wins here? I mean, the Republicans didn't want an increase at all, but they still got it. And worse yet, they probably got every Republican member of Congress to vote in favor of that moderate 10% increase. And the Democrats probably only wanted the 10% in the first place, but they knew if they doubled the initial request, they'd be much more likely to get what they want. And this technique is called setting the anchor. And uh, you can learn about it in the book, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And in another episode one day, I'll explain why this works so well. But a lot of these tricks aren't working anymore under Trump. For example, the left absolutely lost their minds over the 2016 election results. So they jumped to this outrageous claim that the Russians stole our elections. Trump and the Republicans said, well, it's a dumb hoax. We don't care. Trump appoints Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, who is against abortion. The Democrats say, well, he's an accused rapist. You can't let him in. Trump and the Republicans say, yeah, well, you're going to get him anyway. And they pushed him through. By the way, Kavanaugh was horrible on the Fourth Amendment. He should not be a Supreme Court justice because of that, but it doesn't have anything to do with anything that he did in college. And I keep bringing up this Kavanaugh thing because this was a big turning point for a lot of conservatives. Um, this helped them realize that the game was changing and that Donald Trump was helping them with this um, and that their opponents on the left would stop at nothing to get their way. They will ruin this man's reputation. They will throw out whatever accusations they need to um, because the ends justify the means. And that's when you really start to notice a change from mainstream Republicans. They were holding their nose and tolerating Trump, but you really see them start coming around to actually banding together and digging their heels in and refusing to give another inch to their political enemies. But why does this happen? Why does it have to be this way? Why do people in one group have so much hatred for people in another group? And why does a group have so much influence on the individual? Well, to get these answers, we're going to look in the book, The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. Now, you've heard me talk before about Robert Greene's book, The 48 Laws of Power. Now, The 48 Laws of Power, that was his first book. And the book, 48 Laws of Power, is all about ways that you can set yourself up to have influence over other people and oftentimes to manipulate other people so that you can gain power through that. The book is, it's kind of controversial because there are a lot of kind of shady methods in it that you can use. But uh, what Robert Greene says is, look, people use these methods and you need to know about it and you need to know how to defend yourself against it. And that's why I wrote this book. And you've probably heard me say much the same thing when we talk about those laws of power as they pertain to politics and politicians. The laws of human nature is much more introspective. It teaches you how to look at people and how to understand people a little bit better, but it also spends just as much time talking about you and how to look at yourself and how to understand yourself. 
And we're going to talk about this book. And I'm going to go through and just summarize a lot of the things as it pertains to what we're talking about, a lot about mob mentality and and how to deal with aggression and those kind of things. And as we go through, I'm just going to kind of summarize a lot of the important parts of that and we'll stop and we will apply it to politics and, and the things that are happening around us right now as we can see it, just as I see fit. But ultimately, asking the question again, why does the group have so much influence on the individual? Well, it all goes back to childhood. Think back, way, way back to when you were a kid, way back a little bit further to when you were just an infant in your mother's arms. There you were, cute little baby, my precious little eight pound, two ounce baby podcast listener. Your mother's holding you and she looks down at you and she looks into your eyes. She would smile down at you And eventually you learned to smile back. She was calm and comfortable as she held you. That made you feel calm and comfortable. And there's something about looking somebody in the eyes. And uh, Green explains that when somebody looks into your eyes, when another person looks into your eyes, it confirms that you exist. And you've also heard me say in other episodes um, that solitary confinement is torture. And this explains to us why. I mean, can you imagine rotting in a cell all alone for days or weeks at a time with like no human contact and there's no one to look into your eyes. And so not only are you completely alone, but eventually you're not even sure that you actually exist. You're not even sure if you're real. And that's horrifying if you ask me. So... As a baby, you look into your mother's eyes and you get that sense that you are real and you learn to feel the joy that she's feeling when she smiles at you. And pretty quickly after that, you also quickly learn to read and to feel her anxiety and her anger. And even though you have no idea what we're upset about, you know that your mother is upset, so you're upset too. Now, I think this also helps us understand why kids who grow up in high-stress homes have it so much harder than kids who might have a more stable upbringing. I think that also kind of helps us have a little bit more empathy for kids who grow up in those households because they are constantly identifying with the stress that their parents are under. Now, on this podcast, we've talked plenty before about how a lot of these weird psychological quirks we have, um, they were survival mechanisms that helped us thousands of years ago when it was much more dangerous to be a human, right? Now, the ability to feel the moods and emotions of others, this would help you as you grew up in your particular tribe or clan or family or whatever you want to call a group of humans. Um, I googled this real quick and apparently there's not a clear answer. So sometimes I say tribe or group or clan. Um, Just know that when I talk about this, all those words are interchangeable as far as I'm concerned. And um, you want to correct me, write in, let me know why I'm wrong. But so far, I've got nothing. Now, if one person in the group senses danger and they feel fear, that spreads to the rest of the group to warn them that there's danger nearby. And you can imagine when you're out in the wilderness and everything is trying to kill you, um, that that would be a good survival mechanism to have. Same thing would go for anger. If somebody feels angry, if a, if a neighboring tribe happens to be hurting our people or stealing our food, it's good for us to spread that anger for a short period of time so that we can get mad and defend ourselves and do what we can to protect ourselves or to protect our things. 
At the same time, this spread of emotion, it's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because you become angry or afraid or happy because someone else was angry or afraid or happy. And then you spread that feeling to the others in your group and they're all feeling the same way now. And then if you stop for a second and you ask yourself if you're right to feel that way, well, of course you're right. You know, everybody was feeling that way. And uh, when I was writing the notes, it kind of came to mind. I, I thought there's a there's a Bill Burr stand-up comedy clip where he's talking about how dogs match your energy. And he talks about how he's watching TV with the dog and he gets angry at the referee because the ref makes a bad call and he's mad and he's swearing and he's upset at the ref. And so the dog just says, all right, if you're mad, I'm mad too. Let's be mad. And, and they match their energy. And then when he goes to take the dog out on a walk, the first person the dog sees, the dog's like, oh, is that the guy? And, and the dog tries to kill the first person he sees because they're matching that energy. And it kind of came to mind and it just made me laugh. I'll Throw that clip on there if you want to watch it. It really is hilarious, but it made me realize that that's probably also one of the reasons why dogs have been such good companions for humans over the years is because the same way that this group effect rubs off on the other humans around us, we also see that it it rubs off on the dog as well. You know, sometimes you see if you get up and start running around and start getting excited about something, your dog is just happy to be there too. They have no idea what just happened, but they're just happy to be along for the ride. Now, This group thing that we feel, it also makes us want to buy into whatever the group is buying into. You don't want to be left out. And this is why a celebrity endorsement for, you know, whatever product you see on TV or or the crowd endorsements, that's why they're so persuasive. We don't want to feel left out or left behind. If the rest of the crowd feels a certain way about something or they're buying a certain thing, we get the feeling that we must be wrong for not having it. This is also why like a great way to sell a product is to give some of them away. I remember a while back when the iPod came out that I was at an event and they gave away several iPods and I did not win one. But because I saw several other people around me at this event get an iPod, suddenly I had to have one. And I went out and I That was like the next thing I bought was I made sure that I got an iPod because I had to have one. And seeing what other people are doing and seeing what other people have is a very persuasive way to present things. In the same way, if you want people to do something, make sure they know how many other people are doing that thing. And if you don't want someone to do something, don't point out how many people are doing it. There's a book called uh, like 50 ways to get people say yes or something along those lines. And they talk about how if you're trying to get everybody to show up to work on time, don't post a card that says that 10% of people are late every day because people are going to see that and they're going to think, oh, other people are late. I can be late too. Instead, call out the people who are doing the right thing. Tell them that 90% of people are on time every day and we want to raise that number up that you can be like those 90% of people who are already on time. And that will tell them, oh, a lot of people are showing up to work on time. Maybe I need to do that as well. So make sure you keep that in mind next time you're trying to bring attention to your business or your project or whatever it is that you're doing. Let people know how many people are doing the right thing that you want them to do. So When you start feeling what the rest of the group is feeling, the feelings begin as empathy for the rest of the group. But very, very quickly, maybe almost instantly, they turn into our feelings. They feel real and your brain really can't tell the difference. So very quickly, it's your feeling what the group is feeling. But because you're in a group, 
you're protected from the shame that you might normally feel if you got overly emotional. So if somebody at work or at school loses their mind and throws a temper tantrum, we call them crazy. But if an entire group does it, we just call them protesters. This is obviously why the phrase mob mentality brings us these pictures of normal people throwing things at their enemies and ripping buildings apart and flipping cars and attacking police officers when even a lot of the craziest people that we know probably wouldn't consider doing those things on their own. But because you are in the group, you do whatever the group is feeling like you can get away with and you don't have that shame to come back on you. So how do we stay rational? when the group mentality starts kind of taking off without us. You know, what if we're already caught up in the mob? If their feelings become our feelings, how do we even know, right? Well, Robert Greene gives us this advice. I'm going to read here. Whenever you feel unusually certain and excited about a plan or idea, you must step back and gauge whether it's a viral group effect operating on you. If you can detach yourself for a moment from your excitement, you might notice how your thinking is used to rationalize your emotions you might notice how your thinking is used to rationalize your emotions, to confirm the certainty that you want to feel. Never relinquish your ability to doubt, reflect, and consider other options. Your rationality as an individual is your only protection against the madness that can overcome a group. Now, another topic that Green spends a lot of time on in Laws of Human Nature is envy. And Envy is something that we all feel, all of us, yes, even me, yes, even you. But envy, it's really tricky. It hides itself really well because if we were to admit that we feel envy, we're basically admitting that we are inferior to someone else in some way. So instead, what envy does is as soon as we feel it, it masks itself as something else. And usually you aim that toward other people. So, for example, if someone is confident and you envy their confidence, you might become frustrated with them because you think that they're cocky and arrogant. Does that make sense? Um, He also mentions that this happens a lot in relationships where, you know, the things that attract you to a person in the beginning sometimes become the things that get on your nerves the most. A lot of times what can happen there is you really admire those qualities in that person, but then when you spend time with them every day and you see their strengths compared to your weaknesses on a daily basis, then suddenly those things that you looked up to and admired about them turn into envy. And once more, it becomes negative and you find ways to point that at them as a negative instead of admitting that maybe you just wish that you were more like that. And once more, it it masks itself. It's really hard for us to realize that this is why we're feeling this way. And that's why it's important that we talk about it. And there's also a part of us that Carl Jung calls the shadow. And that's the part of us that we learned to repress as a child. Um, If you listen to Tony Robbins, he always asks people, which parent did you crave love from the most? And who did you have to be to get that parent's love and affection? So if you had to be happy all the time, you might push down all your sadness or frustration and push that away. 
If you had to be a high achiever, then you'll constantly feel pressure to gain recognition and to do better than everybody else and everything. So your shadow, as Carl Jung called it, that's the part of your personality that you pushed away, that part that, that is hiding. And a lot of times you don't even want to see it yourself. So we push that down. And Green spends a lot of time in this book talking about what it was like in the Nixon administration. And honestly, it sounds to me a lot like it may have been quite similar to what the Trump administration is like now. There are a lot of really crazy stories and a lot of really high running emotions. And it just sometimes was just pure stress and chaos. And Nixon, he always bragged that he never held a grudge and he never cried. But the truth was, Nixon was incredibly petty and he held all kinds of grudges. He would get mad at people for all kinds of things and then he he wouldn't want to speak to them or he'd want to get back to them and all this stuff. And he would often get frustrated and lock himself in the Oval Office where he would sit alone and cry. So we can see even in someone like a president, that shadow still exists and that's often the part of us that causes so much frustration uh, within us because we're not who we want to be or there's a part of us that we're not letting escape and not dealing with. And what we have to do and what Robert Greene spends a lot of time in this book talking about is we have to learn to tune into these things. We have to ask ourselves the questions about those traits that we hide from everybody and that we might even be hiding from ourselves. Now, we don't know this for sure because we are not living in someone else's head, but we can also suspect that if someone has a particular hatred or disdain for a certain type of person, this may be something in their own shadow that they're working really hard to repress and it upsets them to see somebody else flaunting it freely. So, for example, one thing that we see a lot today is, um, you know, people who hate the rich. And if you hate the rich, you might simply just envy their money and you don't want to admit it. So you tell yourself that they're immoral or whatever anyway, right? You know, of course, some people are legitimately happy living on very little money and they don't have very many material things, but you often don't hear those kind of people berating the rich and demanding that we get rid of them or that we take all of their things away, right? Those people would rather, if if you're genuinely happy about it, you're probably happy just keeping to yourself. And if you want to be rich and you want to have things, then you go do that. But I'm not going to worry about it. I'll be on my own over here. But on the other hand, if someone constantly complains about the rich and how terrible it is that they have so much money, that person may be envious that someone else has more than them. Green also points out something that's kind of common knowledge that, um, you know, maybe if someone really seems to have a problem with homosexuals, then maybe they have homosexual feelings that they have repressed because they feel that those feelings are you know, sinful or socially unacceptable or you know, any one of those kind of things. And honestly, I would take that a step further and say that these people may not even necessarily envy that somebody is gay, but they might envy the freedom that this person has with their body and with their relationships. Also, I think this does a really good job of explaining why you have these kind of, you know, your stereotypical televangelist or some of these Republican congressmen who really act like they hate people who are, you know, sexually promiscuous, but then they end up getting caught having an affair with their secretary or they get caught with a prostitute or something like that. 
Again, I'm not saying that just because you dislike something, it means that you secretly want it. Um, Maybe you just don't care much for rock music or you thought that the show Friends was meh at best. But if the qualities of another person or a group of people really stir up a lot of strong negative feelings for you, it is important that we try to be self-aware and we try to learn to work through those things to make sure that we are judging the situation clearly. Uh, Here's another quote from Robert Greene about how to deal with this. If you notice resentful tendencies within yourself, the best antidote is to learn to let go of hurts and disappointments in life. It is better to explode into anger in the moment, even if it's irrational, than to stew on slights that you have probably hallucinated or exaggerated. People are generally indifferent to your fate. They're not as antagonistic as you imagine. Very few of their actions are really directed at you. Stop seeing everything in personal terms. Respect is something that must be earned through your achievements, not something given to you simply for being human. It also reminds me of, uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, one of the things that, I always forget, I think it's a a demon writing to another demon or something like that, but uh, one of the things he reminds him is always tell the humans that if another human does something that gets on their nerves or, or, you know, frustrates them, tell them that that person is doing it on purpose just to agitate them when the reality is they, they probably didn't even know they did it. And I think that Green, you know, definitely uh, alludes to that in this passage as well, that, you need to stop focusing so much on how other people are treating you and and thinking what they might be thinking about you and what they might be trying to do when the reality is most people are so soaked up in themselves that they're not thinking about you nearly as often as as you might like to think in kind of these conspiracy theories that we build in our minds sometimes about other people. Now, he also points out that people who are lazy and undisciplined are also the most prone to feeling envy. Let me say that again. People who are lazy and undisciplined are also the most prone to feeling envy. Ben Settle, uh, he's a copywriter. I really like him. He always tells his followers that your haters hate you because they are miserable. And it's actually kind of hard for you to fight back against them because you're busy working and creating and accomplishing great things while they, on the other hand, have nothing better to do than to sit at home and pout and try to find ways to attack you. They've got nothing better to do. Jason Stapleton says it a little bit differently. I've never met a hater who's doing better than me. I think that's a great way to put it. Now, Robert Greene says, we should be careful not to let an envious person bait us into retaliating and attacking them. They are miserable. And the best revenge is to let them stew in their envy and misery. Now, it should come as no surprise to us on this podcast that this also applies to politics. For example, if somebody spends all their time railing against totalitarians, it could be a warning sign that that person wishes to be a totalitarian themselves. I'm talking to you libertarians, you know, not all of you, but when you see people react in that way, it makes you wonder sometimes. You're also going to see envy play out differently between men and women. Yes, it is a 21st century, I know, but we still view ourselves mostly as two different genders, and uh, we have a lot of fairly distinct gender roles. Now, one of the things that this means is that a successful man will typically be envied by other men, right? That's 
pretty easy to understand, pretty easy to grab a hold of. However, a successful woman is going to be the recipient of malicious envy from other women and from men who feel a little bit inferior that a woman has passed them up. And that's something I think that conservatives and and people on the right do happen to miss out on a lot. And in my opinion, this explains a lot of the conservatives' hatred for women like AOC and Maxine Waters when really you've got someone like Eric Swalwell who is just as tyrannical as AOC and he's just as low IQ as Maxine Waters but he doesn't get nearly as much hatred or bad press for it. And possibly what that could mean is just that more people feel that malicious envy toward these women because they're women. And because, you know, why does she get to be up there when I as a male still haven't accomplished anything? And that's something that we have to be aware of. Sometimes if we start to criticize someone, are we being unfair on them because perhaps there's a little bit of envy there? Or are we being fair because they're being terrible. And I I do my best to be fair on this podcast, and and I think that's why you're here. Now, let's talk a little bit about the way that groups change over time. Groups and cultures are also going to change from generation to generation. Now, Green identifies a generation as a period of about 22 years, and uh, people on the far ends, you know, either end of that generation, and people on the far ends, you know, either end of that 22-year period might identify more with the adjacent generation. So there's not going to be a hard cutoff, and I think most people understand that. Now, um, one thing, uh, this wasn't in Laws of Human Nature, but I picked this up from somewhere else. This can also be influenced by whether the people live in a, an urban area or a rural area where uh, trends might take an extra like two or three years to make their way from the cities out into the most rural areas. Certain music, certain TV shows, other trends, they might take longer to get popular in the rural areas. For example, MySpace kind of died out in the cities probably three or four years before a lot of the rural areas actually left MySpace and moved over to Facebook. And one of the big things that Green notes is that the generational shifts and differences often make more of a difference than race or class. And a lot of times people kind of end up missing the forest for the trees when we talk about these changes because they're so focused on all these other factors like race and how much money and all this stuff when it's oftentimes the changes are just more related to these 22-year periods of time. Now, it wouldn't be right to have a discussion about generations if we didn't talk about the teenagers, right? The rebellious period that we go through as teenagers is also very important for our development because it gives us a chance to exercise our personal freedom and to try to kind of formulate our own identity and the way that we view the world. The differences between one generation and the next is nothing new. This has always been this way. This, this need from one generation to rebel and set itself apart from the other one, it causes that friction and that, that tension as the older generation gets frustrated that their values aren't being held anymore. And it's really likely that that frustration may also be spurred on by a little bit of envy of the, the next generation's youth as well, because we're not as young as we used to be. Um, we all complain about the crappy music that kids listen to these days. And we've all heard the stories about our parents walking to school with bare feet uphill both ways in 40 feet of snow. But what's funny about this is somebody found an inscription on a Babylonian tablet from the year 1000 BC. And it was complaining about how the youth are godless and lazy and they will never be as good 
as the youth used to be. And honestly, I couldn't agree with it more. Now, Green does mention that there's this fairly new trend that hasn't been around for very long where parents and teachers, they treat adolescents more like their friends than their authority figures. And I, I know some of these people. I'm sure you know some of these people as well. But he points out that the problem here is that makes it so that the teenager doesn't really have anything to rebel against, um, which can cause the teenager a lot of frustration and hopelessness later in life because they didn't get a chance to find their personalities and their feelings early on. And uh, in one of Robert Greene's other books uh, called The Art of Seduction, he mentions that children actually like to be disciplined a little bit because it tells them that the adult cares about them and it helps them to understand that where if they don't have any of that at all, um, that's going to cause them those additional problems with kind of finding themselves and and finding their worth and who they are because they don't have anything to push back against. And um, it doesn't... uh, really allow them the freedom to use their own will. Now, if we look over a broad view of history, there's basically a cycle of about four types of generations that repeat over and over again. And uh, I think this was a, a Sigmund Freud thing, if I remember correctly. The defining moments of whatever period have a huge effect on the teenagers at the time because they're in their rebellious stage and they're trying to find what separates themselves from their parents. So if there is uh, like a war or an economic disaster, it is probably going to make the generation very cautious and, and kind of reserved. If they're teenagers during a cautious time, then that may mean that they want to rebel and become more bold and more adventurous. So what comes to mind for me, uh, just looking at kind of my view of, of fairly recent history is I think of the the roaring 20s where everything was wild and free and there were a lot of these parties where everyone was was very social and interacted with other people and there was all kinds of freedom and then you have the next generation that was raised during the Great Depression and you know that people who were raised during the Great Depression often stayed very conservative throughout their entire lives and they were they were afraid to spend money and they didn't trust banks and all of this stuff well if you listen to the show maybe you know that's fair but um After that, you have a lot of the baby boomers who were much more bold and who were much more prone to take risks than their parents, you know, from that kind of depression era. And when I look at a lot of the younger generation today who've gone through a crisis like 9-11 and through the Great Recession, it makes a lot of sense to see that this generation has become very group-oriented and they feel a need to seek safety. This is going to probably add fuel to the fire, calling for socialism and big government protection and and all of that stuff to protect us from capitalism and protect us from terrorism and those kind of things that they experienced in their formative years. But we have hope as people who love liberty, the next generation is likely going to grow sick of that stuffy protectionism and the lack of adventure, and they'll want to rebel against that by pumping the brakes on the nanny state pumping the brakes on government expansion, and the generation after that will likely be very rebellious and all out open to freedom and adventure. So basically, the generational cycle will be something like this. Of course, it's a a circle, so it doesn't really matter where you start, but we will say uh, the first stage is a, a cautious generation of people who seek safety. You know, they seek shelter in the group. The next generation is going to be a generation of people who start to feel constrained and they start wandering out into the world with new ideas. They, they, you know, kind of come out of their cocoon a little bit, so to speak. Third, there's going to be a generation of people who are incredibly adventurous and free. 
And all of this freedom and risk that they take is inevitably going to lead to some sort of disaster, right? You take big risks. Sooner or later, something's going to blow up in your face. And that's not always a bad thing, but it definitely can be something that can scare you, right? So that next generation is going to be people who have been so free um, that they've seen the disasters from the previous generation, and they seek to restore a more cautious and safe world uh, for them and their children. And then once more, you'll see that that's going to cause a little bit of stuffiness, and people are going to want to break out of that, and then people will break out of that completely, and then they'll kind of come back into the shell a little bit as well. And just like Robert Greene said, sometimes we need to to look at those things and we can predict trends better if we look at those periods instead of just trying to look so closely at what people now are doing and, and using that to tell us what we think is going to happen next, that we need to remember that there is essentially a pendulum that, that swings toward freedom and liberty and then away from it back toward, um, you know, security and, and safety and, you know, a, a lack of freedom and those kind of things. And then it will move back the other way again. Now, when you have a large group, it's almost always going to naturally divide itself into smaller factions sooner or later because the the selfish, narcissistic side of us feels more um, able to matter and to make a difference in a smaller group. And that's something that he talks about in the book as well that I didn't really talk about here, but everyone has a certain amount of narcissism within them, and we need to learn to be aware of that just the same way that we need to try to be aware of our envy and the way aware of the way that the group affects us. So that narcissistic part of you wants to be able to feel like you make a difference and you are not going to feel like you make a difference in a giant, giant group. So those groups are going to break off into smaller factions and that's going to give people um, more of a chance to feel like they matter. Now, we've seen this recently in both political parties where you have factions like the Tea Party movement on the right and then the Democratic Socialist movement on the left. Both of those, uh, you know, Tea Party's kind of come and gone by now, but that spurned a lot of libertarians and that kind of thing as well. Now, in my test episode on mass shootings, and I'm sure I'll talk about it again, I talked about Hannah Arendt's theory that mass violence is becoming more prevalent because our society and our government is so complex. There's really no person or small group of people that you can direct your anger toward if you're upset or frustrated with something. And I think that Robert Greene reinforces this theory in the book here. These smaller factions, as it splits up, they're going to fight with one another, and eventually one of them may even grow strong enough that they threaten to take over the entire group. Now, uh, Mao Zedong used this technique a lot in China. Green tells one kind of long story about where the students in the middle school were taught to, uh, you know, as a communist nation, so they were taught in their schools to look out for traitors and to turn them over to the authorities whenever possible. And eventually the students start thinking about this and they take it very, very seriously. And they get to the point where they start thinking that maybe some of their teachers are secret defectors and that this, their, their teachers are traitors and they need to call them out. So they eventually start tying up some of the teachers and they basically torture them and force them to admit to their crimes and admit to being traitors, even though they probably weren't. But, you know, if you're being tortured, you'll admit to whatever you have to to get them to stop. And the student movement grew and grew and they took over the whole school. And this this happened, I think, over the course of several weeks or maybe even a couple months where the students absolutely ran the school and they were torturing teachers and, and tying them up and almost like keeping them in jail. 
And this student movement eventually grew until it split into two factions. And those factions were almost at war with each other for the the later part of this period where there was total chaos and confusion where the kids had taken over the school. And finally, at the end of it, Mao sent the military into the village and they picked one side as the winner and told everybody to calm down and just go back to school. These are the people that were right. You guys were wrong, but we're not that mad. It's okay. Everybody calm down. We're going to go back to school and hire new teachers and everything is going to be fine. And Mao used this technique a lot where he would instigate fights between the groups or often, you know, maybe they would even start on their own and he wouldn't do anything to stop them. Um, And then after they fought for a while, he would come in and he would settle everybody down. Now, this is a really useful technique for making sure that people below you are too busy squabbling and fighting among themselves that they can't really pose any real threat to you as the leader of the group. But it's also a dangerous gamble. You're playing with fire here because if you don't shut down the winner in time or somebody just gains power too fast, they could take over the whole group and overthrow you. And I... think that's probably a pretty good example of maybe what happened to the Republican Party in 2016. You have Donald Trump that's just growing and grew so quickly that suddenly the, the party is kind of remodeled in his image as opposed to him being the outsider. You know, now he's the guy calling the shots and, and the, the MAGA crowd um, are some of the their most passionate and most valued voters. But eventually, as all of this stuff happens and the group's splitting into factions and factions are warring against each other, the top of the group is going to become a faction of its own. And the elites are going to fight to make sure that they stay in power. So they are going to rationalize how it's best for the whole group to keep them in power. So oftentimes what this is going to look like is the group is going to be making sacrifices that the elites don't have to make uh, for the greater good, right? And this is you know, something that we hear all the time, you, know, you have your social contract that you have to do these things because, you know, it's, it's better for everybody or whatever. And that's just one of those things that they use to make sure that they can keep themselves in power and that, that you stay below them and don't pose too much of a threat. And um, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, you're also seeing this now in the Democratic Party is the establishment Democrats, your, your Clintons and um, a lot of those people are fighting to hold off your AOCs and your Ilhan Omars and your Bernie Sanders of the party. Uh, One other thing to keep in mind is that low self-esteem will also push you deeper into the group's mindset as you seek validation from the group's ideals. And um, you're going to push yourself deeper and deeper into the group think to prove that you belong. And I think that a, a lot of this, we see these people on Facebook and Twitter, right? We see these people that don't have an original thought and all that they can do is parrot what their party tells them to say. And if Donald Trump puts it out on a tweet, then that's gospel. Or if they see it on CNN, then they know it's true. And uh, Michael Malice refers to these people as uh, blue-pilled. If you remember the, the documentary The Matrix where they tell him, you take the red pill, you're going to understand everything and find out about this whole world that you were never aware, aware of. Or you can take the blue pill and everything goes back to normal and you go back to, to basically just being ignorant of the world and, and going through kind of blindly. And so if people have low self-esteem, doesn't even necessarily mean that they're stupid. A lot of people understand these things very well, but they have such a need to be part of the group and they have such a need to feel like they're on the right side um, that they will completely throw away any rational thought of their own and they will only do and say what the group tells them to do and say. 
Now, a lot of times we idolize the leaders of this group. And by idolizing them, by putting them up on a pedestal and, you know, making them almost like a god, we are going to ignore their flaws. We're going to write those things off. We're going to say that they're not important. They're not as bad as people say they are. You know, a lot of them, we may even just say that people made them up. And by ignoring all of those flaws, it makes them easier for us to follow and it makes it easier for us to do whatever they ask us to do. And a side effect of this is going to be that you see a lot of these groups making the same mistakes over and over again, often with just a few years in between. You see this in corporations, you see this in political parties. So why do they make these mistakes over and over again? Why does this happen? Well, because when you are the leader of a group, it's exhausting. There are so many issues and so many people that you have to deal with Sometimes the leader's only source of comfort comes from surrounding himself with yes men. People need your attention all the time. They need you to tell them, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? How are we going to react to this situation? And it helps sometimes just to have people around you that say, yeah, you're right. Yes, you're smart. Yes, you're doing the right thing. So they they kind of come as a, uh, almost as a necessity just to, for the guy to get a break. But... Since the yes-men enable bad decisions that aren't really based on reality, they're likely going to take the blame for the bad decisions, and they'll get removed for their mistakes, as long as it doesn't cost the leader his job. You know, he'll take out the people around him, and he'll stay in power. And they'll be replaced with more yes-men who are going to enable the same bad decisions a few years later. This is also going to help us understand why Republicans keep trying to push moderate centrist candidates that never win major elections. And we also see it currently in the Democratic Party where uh, they were pushing Hillary Clinton over and over and over again, even though nobody liked her, nobody wanted her. Um, And they spend so much of their time complaining about old white guys only to end up putting up another old white guy as their nominee yet again. So moving on ever so slightly, I want to talk about aggression. And aggression is something that we're all capable of showing and acting out on occasionally, but we're generally going to try to avoid going over the top with it. And we may even be passive aggressive, which is still aggression, even if we don't want to admit it to ourselves. Um, One thing to note, uh, while aggression is generally negative, coming from some point of our own weakness, it can occasionally be used for positive purposes. So, you know, if you're fighting off an attacker or maybe you're chewing somebody out who's done something very wrong, those can be the right reasons to show some aggression. Aggression is also something that's relative to the people that we are around. Uh, If somebody else is more aggressive, we ourselves are going to tend to take a little bit more aggressive attitude and aggressive posture toward them. Uh, If they are more submissive, on the other hand, then we will either pity them and feel sorry for them, or we may think of ways that we could slight them or take advantage of them. Just kind of depends on maybe how much we like them and, and what we think that they can do for us or whatever. So the fact that we act more aggressive in some groups than in others It allows us to constantly change our own definition of what we think aggression is. So think about the way that you talk and act uh, if you are going to play a pickup game of football with your guy friends versus how you're going to think and talk and act when you go out to a nice dinner with your in-laws. Those are going to be two completely different situations and aggression is, is going to be different in those situations. So by constantly changing our definition and our our idea of what aggression is, 
that allows us to avoid feeling guilty about being aggressive when we are aggressive. And we can explain away any outright aggression as something that maybe we were forced to do or we we had no choice. You know, we had to push back or these people were going to do whatever. It either wasn't our fault or we can say it was just, you know, the appropriate thing to do at the time. Now, I want to point out that this is why when you have progressives talking about taxing the rich, they're always talking about taxing people in the next bracket above them. They're the ones that we need to tax the most. Bernie Sanders used to talk a whole lot of smack about millionaires, but now that his net worth has hit seven figures, now it's the billionaires who need to pay their fair share, right? There's also a clip I heard a while back of Barack Obama telling a group of people that there were people a lot richer than I am who need to be taxed more heavily. Now, just by the way, Obama's net worth went up $20 million from the time he joined the Senate to the time he left the White House. This is why, you know, a lot of your average Americans want to tax our top 1% of earners, which is like $420,000 a year, instead of the world's top 1% of earners, which is about $33,000 a year. I'm not talking about me. Talking about the next guy. He's the one that needs to pay the taxes. I'm barely getting by, but those, those people that have more than me, those are the ones you have to worry about. So again, as we constantly change the definition of aggression, it allows us to avoid feeling bad for any of our actions while allowing us the freedom to blame and attack anyone who we might disagree with or we might feel envy against. And while most of us will try to be subtle and maybe try to avoid aggression, um, there are people who will often go out of their way to find it. And Robert Greene talks about two different kinds of aggressors, and there's actually a lot of overlap here. So these can be the same people, but you may just be one or the other. But a lot of times, these things can go hand in hand. But there are chronic aggressors and sophisticated aggressors. And a sophisticated aggressor, they often create conflict around them, and then they use that conflict to manipulate people so that they can get ahead, right? So they thrive the best when everything else is going crazy. And and you know a lot of these people. They can't have any peace around them, and they don't want anyone else to have any peace either. You know, most people try to avoid conflict. So their natural reaction is going to be to back off and try to calm things down when someone starts acting aggressively. Once they've backed down, though, the aggressor has the upper hand and he's going to try to continue to force his will. And the same thing goes for chronic aggressors, which, like I said, someone can be both. One of the key signs of a chronic aggressor is their many enemies and their claims that no one has been treated more unfairly or investigated more than them. Got to ask you, is this starting to sound familiar yet? Chronic aggressors use all of these distractions and conflicts to wear down everyone around them. Think of all the turnover we see in the White House. No one can seem to stay for that long. When people get worn down and distracted and just tired of the fighting, they get baited into making bad decisions. If you listen to the financial guy, Dave Ramsey, uh, he talks about why it's important to plan for your financial emergencies. You know that one day you're going to go out, turn the ignition, and the car is not going to start. You know that sooner or later the hot water tank is going to quit on you. You know one of these winters you're going to get the flu and you're going to miss a week of work. And if these financial things take you by surprise, then you're stuck in this like desperate emotional place without any good options. And then you do something crazy, like you take out, you know, a payday loan or you run up a credit card that you can't afford to pay off or something like that. So 
you don't want to get desperate because that's when you make bad decisions. But the same concept applies when you're dealing with other people. If the chronic aggressor can keep you stunned and off balance and emotionally exhausted, you're going to continue to make bad decisions and that's going to play right into his hand. And he's probably set you up to make those bad decisions because you got to remember his anger is just an act. It's just the method that he's using to get you into a weakened position so he can take advantage of you in whatever way is going to benefit him. And you end up surrendering to the illusion of strength that they've presented. And I think what we've seen over the past four years of the Trump administration is a mainstream media and the Democratic Party that is embracing their anger and they've almost become dependent on it. But Green points out that the problem with anger is it's really exhausting and it burns out quickly. Like I said, when we get emotional, we make bad decisions. So what we see is angry journalists and angry politicians losing their cool and they, they overreact. And then that brings on a, a bad decision or bad reaction for them to have to try to get back at him. And we see all of these things that they're trying that haven't been thought through very well. Um, you know, they say he's too crazy or he's not fit for office. They, they blame it on the Russians. Um, you know, we talked about the Kavanaugh thing. We talked about, you know, the impeachment. All of these things are, are backfiring on them. And, and a lot of times they're actually pushing people to Trump because they can start to see how it looks like Trump is being treated unfairly. And, that, and that's part of the trap and part of the plan that he's causing them to fall into. And Robert Greene doesn't really talk much about social media on in the book for whatever reason, but I think that social media has really enhanced the way that we interact with groups. You know, we're connected 24-7 to people all around the world who think and feel and vote the way that we do. And I think that causes the group effect on us to be that much stronger, both when we're online and when we're offline. We feel compelled, especially when we're online, to act like we're part of our group. And so if the group is angry, we make sure that they know we're angry too. Still feeding off of those same emotions and still making sure that we pass that around. But, like I said, anger burns out quickly. It's more of an explosion than a slow burn. And the problem we have, and we have this on both sides a little bit, but I think it's particularly with the left, is, is there's this claim that we can't normalize Donald Trump's behavior. We can't allow ourselves to get used to it. This is wrong, and we must stop it. And along with that comes the reminder, stay angry. So the left, and I know the right is pissed off about plenty of things too, but the left has put themselves into this vicious cycle where they get angry, then they make bad decisions and bad moves that often fall right into the traps that Trump set for them. And then instead of letting their anger cool off and taking time to regroup, someone reminds the group to stay angry. And what happens when someone in the group is scared or angry? We feel their anger. We feel their fear. We feel like we're in danger and the entire group takes on that anger and fear and the cycle repeats again and it leads to those bad decisions and then it leads to anger and fear and it leads to people reminding everyone that they need to stay angry. So what do we do to stop this? Well, Robert Greene tells us exactly how to handle 
chronic aggressors. This is long, but it's very well worth reading here. So he says, see the frightened child within. They want to control your thoughts and actions. Deny them this power by focusing on their actions and your strategies, not your feelings. They want you to think you have no other options and surrender is the best way out. But you always have options. Even if they are your boss and you must surrender in the present, you can maintain your inner independence and plot for the day in which they make a mistake and are weakened, using your knowledge of their vulnerable points to help take them down. See through their narrative and their shrewd attempts at distraction. They will often present themselves as holier than thou or as a victim of other people's malice. The louder they proclaim their convictions, the more certain you can be they're hiding something. Be aware that they can sometimes seem charming and charismatic. Do not be mesmerized by such appearances. Look at their patterns of behavior. If they have taken from people in the past, they will continue to do so in the present. Never bring on such types as partners, no matter how friendly and charming they might seem. They like to piggyback on your hard work, then rest control. Your realistic appraisal of their actual strength and their aggressive intentions is your best defense. When it comes to taking action against aggressors, you must be as sophisticated and crafty as they are. Do not try to fight them directly. They are too relentless and they usually have enough power to overwhelm you in direct confrontation. You must outwit them. Finding unexpected angles of attack. Threaten to expose the hypocrisy in their narrative or the past dirty deeds they have done to the public. Make it seem that a battle with you will be costlier than they have imagined, that you are also willing to play dirty, but only in defense. If you are particularly clever, appear relatively weak and exposed, baiting them into a rash attack that you have prepared for. A little bit later, he says, detach yourself from the emotions of it. Focus on their goals and what they're really after. Fight them indirectly. Find their vulnerabilities, find holes in their narrative, and threaten to bring them out so they fear attacking you. Their greatest fear is to lose control and a series of events that cause them to spin out of control make their easy victory of encountering you suddenly seem more expensive. Sometimes use their own methods against them. When preparing a counter, remember that defending aggressors is more important than maintaining your purity. I think that's it. That's your playbook for defeating Donald Trump. I mean, sure, it will require some wit, but I mean, there are plenty of smart Democrats in Washington. So why don't they start this plan today? Well, I don't think they're capable of it. I mentioned this in the climate change episode, but I think it bears repeating. The right is often driven by facts and data. And I understand, yes, there's a lot that they might misuse and they might get wrong, but somewhere there is something on paper that proves to them that their ways are right. The left, on the other hand, are driven by emotion and the need for justice. And again, they might define justice very differently than the rest of us, but their goal is to make all things equal and all people equal, no matter what. And for both sides, for the people in the groups, this works pretty well for them, right? Conservatism gives uh, an ideological home to a lot of Christians and a lot of people interested in protecting their own rights and nationalists who believe that this country is special and it holds something worth protecting, right? 
and you got progressivism. And while it comes off as absolutely crazy and hysterical to those people who are on the right, progressivism is incredibly good at moving people and shaping culture. Progressives will demand the rights for union workers to attack and possibly even kill anybody who crosses a picket line, and they made that happen. They demand money to be printed out of thin air so that everybody can get student loans to go to college, and they made that happen. And now they're demanding the right for biological males to compete against females in track races and powerlifting, and they're making it happen. You can scoff at their hurt feelings and their egalitarianism all you want, but progressives continue to move the needle in this country because they're pretty damn good at it. But right now, in this situation, their enemy isn't on the picket lines. He's not sitting in a boardroom or in a college classroom somewhere. Their enemy is what we have learned is a sophisticated chronic aggressor who sits in the Oval Office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And if they're going to beat him, they have to let their emotions cool. They have to let him win a few rounds so that he gets comfortable and lazy and complacent. Just the right attitude for him to fall into a trap that they've set for him. Donald Trump can be beat. Not by anger, not by mob mentality, but by cool, calm, planning, and precision. But I don't think they can pull it off. In this ideology that's based on righting every wrong and fighting every battle, they're not going to be willing to let themselves lose anything to set up a trap for him. And because they pride themselves in their righteous anger, they won't be willing to calm down long enough to plan ahead. So, they will continue to do what got them this far. They'll continue to be shocked and appalled by Donald Trump and everything he does. They'll continue to stay angry and remind others to do the same. And they'll push out a tired old former vice president with dementia so they can accuse us all of being racist Russian assets when nobody votes for him. And you and I, we will be blessed with four more years of drama, anger, trolling, and fuel for this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know this was a long one, but there was a lot of information that I wanted to make sure that we didn't miss any of it. And uh, hopefully it was all worth it to you. If you liked this, the best thing you can do is just share it with somebody. Send somebody a link, take a screenshot, put it up on your Instagram, whatever it is that you want to do to get the word out that this podcast is one of the best and one of the fastest growing podcasts out there. And this podcast is only great because you have made it this way. So thank you so much. Can't wait to come back again in a couple of weeks and find something else to talk about. Until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.